0: This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Dave Green to the program to hear a few stories about Amsterdam, Dave.
1: All right, I'm waiting, Bob. All set. I understand you have at least three items to deal with today.
0: I do, and maybe we won't get to the last one. Let's hope we get it all in, because sometimes we run out of time. Uh, The first story has to do with Monsignor Brown. There's a popular television show on PBS called Father Brown. Have you ever seen that, Dave? No, I have not. Well, anyhow, uh, Monsignor Brown, therefore, reminds me a little bit of the Father Brown show on PBS. But as far as we know, Monsignor Brown did a lot of things in Amsterdam, but he was not a detective, as Father Brown is on PBS. Not,
1: Not that we would expect that, Bob. No.
0: And the other story, or one of the other stories we hope to do, is about the Amsterdam Library and the third about veterans housing in Amsterdam. Before we start with that, though, I did want to mention uh, that a longtime colleague of ours from our days at uh, WGY who passed away from ALS, commonly called Lou Gehrig's uh, disease, a man named Jeff Gluck. His wife, Liz Berger Gluck, is having a memorial golf tournament. Uh, on behalf of the ALS Foundation uh, in Jeff's memory. Uh, And she'd asked if we could uh, publicize it. The tournament's coming up on May 23rd. And if you want to make a donation, let's say you don't golf, which is my situation, uh, but you want to make a a donation to the cause, uh, they have a website called jgluckgolftournament.com. And Gluck is, uh, you put a G in front of luck. And there you have Gluck, com coming up on May 23rd. On to Monsignor Brown. The headline on this when it ran as a story in the Daily Gazette, Businesses Closed for Monsignor Brown. William Arthur Brown, who became one of Amsterdam's most important Roman Catholic leaders, was born in Watervalete, on April ninth of eighteen fifty-eight, his older brother Daniel had become a priest. But Daniel died in eighteen seventy-two, which led to William joining the priesthood. Back in those days, Dave, I believe that's how you know it, it worked. You know, a, a family, and you know, in particular here, I think we're talking an Irish family would be very, uh, very proud to have a member uh, of their family become a priest. And uh, Dan- Daniel Brown had been the one kind of selected, but then. He passed away. So I imagine I, I wouldn't necessarily—don't really know if they put pressure on William to join the priesthood, but in fact, he did.
1: Well, I'm, I've seen enough Spencer Tracy movies to understand the theory, Bob.
0: Okay. And Father Brown served a parish in Catskill for two years where his cousin was pastor. As we go through this story, he's he's related to quite a few other Roman Catholic clergy. Of uh, Father William Brown did a stint a teaching at a private girls' school in Albany, and he was pastor of a church in Castleton. After the unexpected death of the formidable Reverend John McEncrow, pastor of St. Mary's on East Main Street in Amsterdam, Brown was picked to succeed McEncrow. McEncrow has been the subject of several stories that I've written about Amsterdam history. He had been designated pastor for life at St. Mary's, and Father Brown, as he then was called, uh, was named pastor for life and served for 33 years. He was appointed in 1897. He did not die until age 75 in August of 1933. Mack and Crow had taken steps to make St. Mary's the center of Catholic life in Amsterdam by creating a church school, St. Mary's Institute, and inviting the sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet to teach there. He bought land in Fort Johnson for the parish cemetery. And then when he died, that's Father McEncrow we're talking about, he was buried there. And there's a statue of Father McEncrow in the cemetery, uh, The picture of which was in my uh, most recent book, Lost Mohawk Valley. The Father McEncrow statue was dedicated during a crowded ceremony on Father Brown's watch in 1902. Many attendees, Dave, arrived by trolley car for this because the cemetery is a little bit out of town.
1: And we've dealt enough with trolley cars to know what we're talking
0: about. (laughs) Yes, we have. That same year, uh, 1902, Father Brown purchased a home on Guy Park Avenue, had been owned by the Abram Marcellus family. And that home became the first St. Mary's Hospital in Amsterdam in nineteen oh three. So Father Brown really is credited with founding Saint Mary's Hospital. Like the parish school, the hospital staff was drawn from the Sisters of Saint Joseph of Carondelet. And every time I say their name I I smile a bit because I got to know the the Good Sisters when my Aunt Vera Cudmore worked at that hospital. In fact her best friend was a nun, a Sister Mary Engelbert and all the nuns seemed to know my aunt vera and they all got a kick out of aunt vera cuz aunt vera was sort of this salty lady and they enjoyed her humor she used to wait on them at the i don't know the sisters dining room or something uh at the hospital and um they were they were much entranced with aunt vera but aunt vera was far in the distance in 1903 when this hospital opened in 1909, switching gears from the hospital to the school that had been started by his predecessor, Father Brown awarded a contract to J.J. Turner Construction of Amsterdam, which really was the Amsterdam building firm. They built much of Amsterdam in the early 1900s. Uh, So J.J. Turner got the contract to build a new school building for St. Mary's Institute on Forbes and Maple Streets near the church, The church is on East Main Street. This is like right behind uh, the church or maybe a little kitty corner behind the church. And even by then, 1909, the enrollment at St. Mary's Institute was over 700 students. The building, which is now demolished, cost $200,000, and it was state-of-the-art for its time with slate stair treads and terrazzo floors. I think that means something, Dave, in terms of Construction. Uh, yeah, I don't have any idea what, the, what that is. But... Well, slate on the stairs, you know. Yeah, I got
1: that. That sounds a little slippery, actually.
0: Well, it does. Uh, but I I remember that from schools, don't you? <clears throat> this sort of gray material, which I think must have been slate on the on the stairs going up. Maybe they put little implanted t- treads on it.
1: <laughs> Perhaps, Bob. Now that we're talking construction, what was the what was the type of the other uh, item?
0: Uh, terrazzo floors? I even looked that up before I wrote the column on this. That's a Certain kind of blended—it's like concrete in a way, but they blend little bits of stone in it, and just looks pretty. Okay. It's Believe me, I'll take your word on this. They named the building, St. Mary's Institute, Dugan Hall, for the chief financial benefactor, Patrick Dugan. Dugan was an Irish immigrant whose East Main Street grocery business prospered, as did his real estate purchases. Patrick Dugan died in 1906— he left his estate to the church through Father Brown as Dugan's wife and children had predeceased him. Much of the uh, information for this story about Father Brown, Monsignor Brown uh, came from my good friend Jackie Murphy's book St Mary's a Parish History, or actually it's st mary's parish a history uh, and Jackie does uh, go go on to say uh, in connection with uh, Mr. Dugan, or, or else now I'm, I'm not sure my my source, or else I got it out of a newspaper clipping, but I never got a final follow-up. Apparently some of the relatives said, hey, whoa, hang on there. You know, we're here too. But I think the courts uphold the, the gift to uh, St. Mary's um, Church and therefore St. Mary's Institute, so they built the school. might just mention that school building is gone now. Um, it was demolished probably in the time of urban renewal, in Amsterdam in the 1970s, there still is a St. Mary's Institute in Amsterdam. It's a K through eight school. It's up on uh, Church Street or Church Street, uh, almost outside of the city of Amsterdam. But that's one of Father Brown's chief uh, contributions to his parish was building this new school. And he also started the hospital. And the hospital's going. And in 1921, St. Mary's Hospital Auxiliary was formed. This little personal note, Miss Audrey belongs to the Auxiliary. Just thought I... Well, we we
1: appreciate that.
0: Yeah, It's still in existence. They just had their, whatever it was, uh, um, you know, anniversary of, of founding of the Auxiliary. And they started a nursing school at St. Mary's Hospital, their first graduates, in 1923. And as he built a new school building for the High School and the Elementary School, Father Brown also spearheaded construction of a dedicated hospital building, the first of several that have been opened in Amsterdam at St. Mary's. It opened in 1927 with four operating rooms, an x-ray department, which was cutting edge at the time, Dave, and a laboratory.
1: It, certainly. It, we talk, we're, we're talking about people who were thinking ahead.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I was kind of impressed that they had x-rays at that early stage, but they did. Now we come to the passing of Father Brown, who is named Monsignor by the time he died in 1933. We can't show it here on our podcast, but but I'm sure we'll put it on the promotional material for uh, this discussion. I received a great picture uh, from Tom DeMezza, Thomas DeMeza a photograph of the crowd outside St. Mary's Church for the funeral of Monsignor Brown in 1933. Uh, Tom De Meza, a former city police detective lieutenant in Amsterdam, said he had never seen a picture of a funeral that large. I mean, it really was huge, Dave. There's this large crowd across the street. There's a crowd in front of the church. There's the funeral uh, vehicles uh, lined up and so forth. And I think the reason Tom de Meza has the picture is that his father, a man named Emilio de Meza, worked for the funeral home that was in charge of the funeral, which was the McNamara Funeral Home. And uh, his father, apparently, Emilio de Meza, was at the head of the casket going into the uh, church. And later on, Emilio de Meza founded his own funeral home. And still later, Dave, something of interest to you and I, Emilio de Meza was one of the partners that started Amsterdam's first radio station, WCSS.
1: I'm learning all kinds of stuff here.
0: Back in the late 40s. Thousands paid their respects the night before to Monsignor Brown by filing past his casket inside the church. It was something like a state funeral. And there were over 200 priests there. You can just see how, you know, what dare I say, you know, that the church was so much more active or populated and having that many priests. So 200 priests were at the funeral mass headed by the bishop, Edward Gibbons. The late Monsignor's nephew, Reverend William Brown of St. Joseph's Church in Albany, celebrated mass. All downtown businesses were closed as the Monsignor Brown, who also named William, as his funeral procession, I made it all the way to the cemetery out in Fort Johnson. And there another Monsignor, Joseph Delaney, Vicar General of the Diocese, blessed the grave. Delaney had spent his childhood in Amsterdam, where his father was a plumber. He became the next pastor of St. Mary's, but didn't serve as long as Father Brown. He served only three years, and Monsignor Delaney died in 1936. As often happens, I mean, that's basically the end of my story about Monsignor Brown, but after the story ran online and in the uh, uh, Daily Gazette, I heard from uh, Dave Northrup, who is an author from Rochester, a native of uh, Amsterdam, who's very interested in local history and uh, was familiar with St. Mary's Church. I believe his family went there. And I haven't checked this out, but you on know, Dave Northrup's uh, testimony, he says that one thing that Monsignor Brown didn't do... At Saint Mary's, was introduced sports. Apparently, he was against it. Interesting. Yeah, and I and they believe, or the Northrop's believe, and I I didn't really see that in the uh, book from uh, Jackie Murphy that Monsignor Brown had not had sports, but she did mention in her history of the parish how Monsignor Delaney was a great football fan. So maybe that's when they uh, the Saint Mary's sports teams. Uh, really took off, especially in terms of uh, football. But uh, I do have to check that out. I'm not sure that's um, you know completely accurate.
1: In order to get things done, Bob, you, it proves once again: in order to get things done, you need to change the generation of sorts.
0: <laughs> in a way, that could, that could be that's the certain, case. Yeah. You know, and also I was really uh, touched that when this column came out uh, uh, in the Daily Gazette that Sunday. Uh, the relatively new pastor at St. Mary's, a father, and I hope I pronounced it correctly, Jeffrey Larch, uh, Father Jeffrey Larch, he read the column at all the masses uh, at St. Mary's Church that weekend. So that's the story of Monsignor William Arthur Brown, who was pastor of St. Mary's Church in Amsterdam. And
1: you describe a community, I heard community. In that story, Bob,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, something I, I guess we're talking, refresh me here, 1933 was, was when he passed away. OK, yeah. so in 1933, I'm sure there was no particular mall up Route 30 anywhere.
0: <laughs> no, there wasn't. Right. No. And in, and the when I say the business district closed in Amsterdam, that was on the main street uh, where they, we now have a mall, but it's mainly got doctor's offices and things like that in it. But that was really the commercial hub. But all those businesses closed as the funeral procession went west on that main street and then entered Fort Johnson, where the cemetery is located.
1: Now, you have some information about the Amsterdam Free Library.
0: Yes. uh, The library has always been uh, close to my heart in Amsterdam. And this year, they're doing – they're out on the hustings, if you will. They're – there, uh, there's a political campaign going on in support of the library. In May, uh, voters in the Amsterdam school district will vote on whether to establish a tax, what they call a tax levy, for the Amsterdam library and the library in Fort Hunter. That vote comes up uh, on May 17th. I'll have more on it in just a couple of minutes. But kind of uh, at their request, uh, the request of... Uh, a man I work with quite a lot up in Amsterdam, John Napel, who's the president of the uh, Amsterdam Free Library Board of Trustees, he wanted to include uh, some historical information on the library that I'd written about in the past. So I decided, Dave, we'd do it again. Let's find find some more out about uh, the early days of the Amsterdam Free Library. So here we go. The first organized book collection in Amsterdam was called the Union Library, founded in 1805 and operated one day a week from the home of the librarian. There were no records for the Union Library after 1832. The next library-like organization that formed uh, was formed in the 1840s. By then, Amsterdam had been made a village uh, and was called the Amsterdam Literary Association, and the Amsterdam Literary Association lasted at least until 1860. Its first president was carpet mill founder John Sanford, who uh, with his son founded Sanford Carpets, and then ultimately that became Bigelow Sanford, one of the major employers in Amsterdam. This is way back in the 1840s. Dues paid to this literary association helped pay for rental of a reading room in the village. And the Literary Association invited speakers to attend winter sessions. And when there was no speaker, topics were debated. And listen to this, Dave. January 14th, 1848, an unknown topic was discussed with a good deal of irregular conversation between members, quoting the, the minutes of their meeting, whereupon, on or about the hour of 10, and without any motion being put, the meeting broke in a row
1: why why did they describe things years ago, Bob, in such a succinct way you know it's it seems to be so clearly defined as compared to reading history today <laughs>
0: that's true you well know, they well they you know they had no video right no audio they were they had to get to the point they had to get to the point, but political correctness still reigned back in those days. Um, they said the meeting broke in a row in the minutes. But at the next meeting, they altered the minutes, changing the word row to disorder. Okay. (laughs) This we get. Yeah. We understand. So the Literary Association kind of goes on for a while. But then in 1891, I know we've skipped over a lot of ground there, but 1891, some prominent citizens led by two physicians, Dr. William Robb and Dr. S.H. French, founded the Amsterdam Library Association. M. Annie Trapnell, a woman who also founded Amsterdam's prominent women's club, the Century Club, she was also involved in this. She set up a fund for book acquisitions. The Amsterdam Library was located on East Main Street, west of Church Street. It was not a free library. Members still had to pay a fee. The fee was $1 a year. But in 1895, the women of Amsterdam came through. In 1895, the facility became a free library after a fundraising campaign organized by women in the community, sponsored by the Daily Democrat newspaper. A special women's edition of the newspaper sold 10,000 copies and raised $1,500. The... There was a great time, really, in Amsterdam. It's a time of growth in the mills. You know, the carpet mills, the knitting mills, the button mills are all starting to go, and uh, to be well, be frank. I mean, and typically the wives of the mill owners and so forth were in. For example, the Century Club were involved in these charitable endeavors and really did a lot of uh, good in, in the community.
1: Once again, community, Bob. Well, Penn,
0: what's the focal point year? The year here exactly? It was eighteen ninety-five. Okay, ninety-five. Uh, and and it was a. I can't say I, I've heard of something like this. You know, the newspaper gave you know gave them a, a an edition. You know, you you can sell the ads in this edition, and you know the all the merchants and so forth contributed money and they raised enough money to make they, they did away with the dues for the Amsterdam library. In 1902 the Amsterdam Library Association became the Amsterdam Free Library after a donation of $25,000 was secured from philanthropist and industrialist Andrew Carnegie who was solicited by Dr. French. Dr. French had to be the one you know, he couldn't call him, or maybe he could call him. And I imagine he could, but he probably wrote him. Please, Mr. Carnegie, we'd like to have one of your libraries. And Carnegie agreed to put up the money for a library building in exchange for the city's pledge for ongoing financial support. Carnegie built a lot of libraries. I know the library in Gloversville, I'm pretty sure the library in Gloversville no, I'm sorry, I know the library in Gloversville was a Carnegie Library and I'm pretty sure the library in Johnstown was one as well, but he put up the money to build a library building, and it's the building that is still in use today. However, Carnegie did have a string attached to this. The question was, or the the string, was that the city had to pledge ongoing financial support. That question apparently was put to a vote in the city and passed by a five-to-one margin. Historian Hugh Donlan wrote that city aldermen, even though they had that vote that they could rely on, were still a bit hesitant about the idea of going along with ongoing library maintenance, but they did go along with the proposal after a meeting held at Alderman Frank Parmentier's Saloon down on Railroad Street.
1: Love those saloons, Bob.
0: Yeah, so maybe there was a drink or two in favor of the library. The architect for the building was the firm of Fuller and Pitcher of Albany. The facility was constructed at church in what was then called Livingston Street, it's now called Grove Street, by contractor Bernard Mackold. At a Masonic cornerstone ceremony, Dr. French, who, if you recall, is the guy that asked Andrew Carnegie for the money, Dr. French said, quote, the whir of spindle and wheel will penetrate even the rooms set apart to reading and meditation. A constant reminder of the fact that thought and action must be inseparable. The toiler, not the idler, is the one for whom libraries are founded. I find this
1: is inspirational.
0: <laughs> it is. And he was answering a charge brought by some critics about, you know, does Amsterdam really need this? You know, similar to what you hear today. And, and the point then was, you know, the critics said, well, you know, we're some mill town? You know what does somebody you know winding bobbins in a knitting mill or doing that kind of work in a rug mill need uh, with a library? But Doctor French is saying, well, look, you know th- this is a a place uh, f- where we can educate people. Uh, the toiler, not the idler, is the one for whom. Libraries are funded. well. Well,
1: I mean, we can't say there were there were great amounts of distraction at the time, such as video games or the internet. So why wouldn't there have been more of a focus on support of the library?
0: Well, there was. You know, remember that vote was five to one, but you know, it did have its its critics, and I think that you know, Doctor French was trying to answer those.
1: There had to be more people reading them than
0: now. Yeah, I mean, on a regular basis. Yes, yeah. on a regular basis, probably. So. Uh,
1: opening a book.
0: Yes or a newspaper. Anyway, they had the grand opening of the Amsterdam Free Library, November 2nd, 1903. Library trustees and their wives, and the one trustee was a woman, was also there. And the librarian and her staff were there. That has even come down to us through history. The librarian in 1903 was Jenny Co. Moore. Jenny Co. Moore. And they all, according to... Newspaper accounts were happy and proud as they heard crowds of men, women, and children make exclamations of admiration and delight. The Recorder newspaper reported, Brilliant with lights, decorated with palms, ferns, and potted plants, resounding with the sweet strains of orchestral music by Professor Shaw and his orchestra, the library presented a handsome and attractive appearance." One thing that's always um, pleased me about the library is you walk up to it, and it, it is built on a hill, you know, because Amsterdam is the city of hills. Um, but so you have to kind of walk uphill to get there. I don't get there as easily as I used to Ah, uh, Yeah, I, can, I yeah. get the picture. But carved in stone over the entrance are the words open to all. Yeah, good words. Open to all. And really, generations of Amsterdamians are familiar with the interior of the stately building with its oak woodwork, reading tables, and second-floor children's section. The library expanded once. A rear wing was constructed in 1980. And as I said when I uh, started the piece, on May 17th, voters in the Greater Amsterdam School District are to decide on establishing a tax levy to raise $200,000 a year for the Amsterdam Libraries operating expenses, and also ten thousand dollars a year for the Fort Hunter Library. Currently, the Amsterdam Library does receive partial funding from the city of Amsterdam, the town of Amsterdam, and uh, New York State. But it's um, you know it's it's being more and more difficult to get th- these municipalities to uh, donate. So uh, the library is is hoping to establish this um, this kind of support. It exists in other communities in the area of Amsterdam. Uh, for example, the uh, library in Gloversville is also, uh, ra- you know, funds are raised for it uh, through the uh, Gloversville Enlarged School District. So that's the library story. Uh, I think we're not going to have time for the, the story on the veterans housing. We will hope to get to veterans housing in a, in a future edition of the Historians podcast. Uh, One other point about the library, Um, Amsterdam's most famous son has donated, you know, not like Andrew Carnegie donated, but Kirk Douglas has given a few thousand to the library over the years. And he even had a plaque uh, put up in honor of a woman who was very helpful to his early career, a a childhood friend of his uh, named Sonia Siegel. So um, that plaque is, is at the library. And I do just love going there. It's a it's a nice place uh, to be, and uh, they are a very active group. A lot of young people are involved uh, even though you know we're in the computer age, a lot of young people don't have computers at their homes, and so the library is a place where they uh, sometimes can go and and use their uh, computers. If anything, libraries are busier today than they were before this um, you know big explosion. electronic stuff. Well, Dave, we're running out of time. I thank you very much for being a patient listener. No problem, Bob. Enjoyed it. You're listening to, or you have been listening to, The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.